Up next on Radio Days, the podcast. Feels so good, I gotta do it again. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Hello and welcome to Radio Days, the podcast. Not only offering this audio podcast for your enjoyment, but now you can watch this podcast via YouTube and, of course, at Ron Roberts Studios. Um, On this week's episode, we're going to be welcoming a very special guest, National Radio Hall of Famer Fred Jacobs will be joining us. This episode, which is brought to you by Team 71 Mortgage Group in Shelby Township and Radio Days, the movie. Um, So today, as I mentioned, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the career of radio's biggest, one of radio's biggest luminaries, Mr. Fred Jacobs. Even if you don't know Fred Jacobs by name, I assure you that you've likely been affected by some of his accomplishments. He's a former program director at WRIF in Detroit, and he's also uh, responsible, along with Tom Bender and a few others, uh, for creating the classic rock format. Did I mention that he's a graduate of both U of M and MSU? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Founder and president of Jacobs Media, Mr. Fred Jacobs. Hey, Fred, how are you, sir? Hey, thank you, Ron. It really is an honor to be here. Good to see you as well. Yes, yes. Well, you know, COVID's changed things, so it's it's more acceptable to be, you know, remote now. Well, and I hope I'm not uh, pissing off the Michigan people watching this. We're recording this in early February, and yes, I'm actually sitting in Florida yeah. Uh, where I work out of in the wintertime. So I I still crank as hard as I normally would back in Michigan. I just don't have to scrape the windows in the morning. That's really the upside of it all. But uh, nice to be here with you. You know, it's interesting. Most of the smart people I know spend some part of winter in Florida. So I don't, I'm just, I, think it, I don't think it's a coincidence. Just saying. I never thought I would. Let's put it that way. And here I am. So, yeah. All right, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about your career, Fred, but I want to start back at the beginning. Let's go back as Fred Jacobs as a young man. What is your earliest memory of listening to the radio? So I really grew up at the perfect time to be a kid and to be exposed to radio. I mean, I grew up in the 60s, so I, and I grew up in Detroit. Well, what an honor, right? So... I had all this incredible radio coming at me from the time I can remember, and I was buying 45s at a really young age. I'm embarrassed to tell you some of the 45s that I bought, but it was all because they were being played on the radio, and that's where kids not just discovered new music, uh, but music in general, and certainly radio and DJs and all that. So yeah, I grew up with Keener and WXYZ and CKLW and all those stations. And, you know, I kind of came into my adult years right when the FM thing started happening with ABX and uh, WXYZ FM, formerly Riff, uh, all that. So, you know, talk about a great time to be growing up radio-wise and music-wise, right? I mean, right. really the... The Beatles, go- I mean... Right, the golden years for, for both the medium and the music. So 
And obviously that influenced me in my career. Now, obviously the music brought you to the party, but you mentioned personalities a couple times. Personalities would eventually become celebrities, much like the artists that they were playing on the radio. But when you were growing up, you mentioned Keener, and I know that was one of your first, you know, where you became a a fanboy of radio. What were some of the personalities that you were listening to? Do you remember some of the names? Oh, sure. Uh, And what's really cool is, in my adult years, in my professional years, I've actually met these guys and, and done a little either work or fun with them. But uh, Gary Stevens and uh, Scotty Regan uh, were two of the uh, DJs that I really enjoyed listening to a lot. And I met Scotty uh, later when he was uh, pushing records. And Gary, of course, went on to become a media executive and a radio station broker. And he lives about a mile away from me in Florida. And uh, now and again, we go out and uh, grab a little lunch. And I tell him I grew up listening to him, and he gets a little pissed off. But that's okay. Uh, But it's really cool, you know, meeting these people. Lee Allen was another. Uh, I I remember vividly listening to him and the horn. And uh, we got to do some work with Lee a number of years later at one of our Dash conferences uh, I met Lee. We had a number of cups of coffee together, and he was actually a keynote speaker at one of our conferences. So it's really cool, you know, to be able to uh, not only grow up in a time like that, but to meet some of these people who really were mentors or maybe influencers. We didn't call them that, right. that but but they were. I mean, they were tastemakers and. You know, when you saw them out at events and that type of thing, I mean, they were heroes in the marketplace. So, you know, I'm really blessed that I grew up with it and then I got to work in it. You know, it's interesting is because doing the docuseries that that I did and going back and looking at, you know, highlighting some of that time with Keener. And it's interesting because no disrespect to the promotions that radio is making out today, but they were much more extravagant. I'm, I'm and and I I'm not sure if it ended up on the editing cutting floor. I think it's in the series where I play a jingle, and it was put on by Keener, and, and it's 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 just and I'm not going to do it justice, but I know you'll recognize it. It says Budweiser, the best reason in the world to drink beer, and I mean that I mean that was so creative for the time, but. A lot of that had to do with the personalities and the people that were doing these ads. And you mentioned a couple, but was there anybody? And So I comment on that, but I also want you to, in your answer, talk about how big Robin Seymour was in this era. Oh, well, right. Not only on the radio, but swinging time. Uh, you know, watching him after school. <laughs> um, God, it seems like a thousand years ago, and it kind of was. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he was a major personality back then. I mean, you know, and the thing about Detroit that maybe people around the country don't realize, but our, our DJs and our TV anchor people, uh, the weather people, the sports people, and, of course, the anchors, in in this town, they were gods. I mean, they were primo celebrities. I mean, you know, in the 70s and 80s, they were paid like it, too. But but they were absolutely gods. I mean, you know, this is a market that doesn't have Broadway or Hollywood, or it's not like a Nashville or an Austin with a music scene that, you know, hits all the clubs and stuff. I mean, it was really radio and TV personalities who made things. So, you know, imagine going to work for Riff in uh, the mid to late 70s and 
being on the same campus, really, with Bill Bonds <laughs> on the one hand and uh, working with Arthur Penhallow and, and that group on the other and seeing Dick Purton in the cafeteria, you know? I mean, just, wow, what am I doing here, you know? It was really cool. Well, it's interesting because it's one thing to be a fan of that type of radio. But talk about, I mean, how do you transition and say, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. This is the career I want to pursue. How, why and, and how did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in radio, and, and how did you do that? Well, I came to it really late by radio standards. If you talk to most radio people, they knew when they were 12 that this is what they wanted to do. Um, I came to this really late. I didn't really connect the radio dots until I was in my early to mid-twenties. And, and it really happened at Michigan State for me. I, I, was at, uh, I got my degree, as you mentioned, my first degree at Michigan in really nothing. It's a Bachelor of General Studies, so uh, there was no TV radio program. I probably would have gravitated to that because I've always loved the media world and the music world, but Michigan didn't, only had a speech department so I took journalism classes, and then I was lucky to get into Michigan State's TV radio program, and they made me take a couple of undergraduate courses because I had no background. So I had to take a TV production course, and I thought, oh, that'll be fun. And I hated it, Ron. Just <laughs> couldn't stand it. You know, being dependent on 20 other people to make a TV show I just didn't like that whole scenario at all. And then they made me take the uh, intro radio course, and I fought them. I told them, you know, I really don't need to do this. I took the TV course. I'm fine. They said, no, you've got to take the radio course. And, you know, luck. Uh, the guy who yeah. taught it was a guy named Jim Rusprus. Nobody knows this guy. He was an instructor. He didn't have a Ph.D. or any of that stuff. And the department stuck him with teaching the production classes. And this was one of those magnetic guys who just, I mean, by the, by the third class, I remember calling my parents and going, Hi, I've got a birthday coming up. I need a, a tape recorder, an editing block, and a year's supply of razor blades because I'm going to be a radio guy. But, you know, that didn't really kind of click for me until I was in my early to mid-20s. And at mm -hmm. that point, I felt, oh, I am so behind. I mean, there's all these other people who have been in radio for five, eight, ten years, and they're already moving up the ranks, and they've worked in Muskegon, and now they're in Traverse City, and they're going to get to Detroit. And here I am, kind of an old guy, relatively speaking. So I, I, I kind of took a measure of myself and realized or at least concluded that I really didn't have a career on the air. I didn't think I was good enough, and I really didn't want to spend a decade moving from smaller markets to medium to larges. And so I thought, maybe there's a back door. And I got very interested in audience research. The only required class at Michigan State's master's program was a research methods class. And the guy who taught it, Dr. John Abel, was another one of these people who really lit the light for me. I mean, he basically taught me that, look, you may think you're a able radio programmer and you understand music, but when you actually can combine that with audience research and find out what people really like, that's when you really become a master at it. 
And he was right. And so I came in through the research side. My first job out of college was working for the Frank Maggot Company, which most of, uh, most of your viewers, listeners, probably have never heard of. But back in the day, Frank was the only company in America that was doing audience research for TV and radio. Well, you know, I want to stop you right there because, I mean, it's it seems like a no-brainer looking back at it now. But th- that's what I'm fascinated. Not so much that you, you, you got into it later than normal. But when you think about radio, oh, I want to make radio. Like when you talk to Dick Purton, he knew he wanted to make radio. Like where does that come from? Even for a 20-something, where, oh, you know what? I'm going to do research. Somebody no one really gives a shit about right now. But – I'm going to make my niche in this. I mean, who, how? how? I mean, because to me, that seems brilliant in hindsight. Well, thank you. Uh, I don't, at the time, I certainly wasn't sure about it, but I just felt that from everything that I was kind of intaking, that so much of radio programming was seat of the pants. Um, And look, sometimes that works. I mean, there, there were some brilliant people out there Um, like Bill Drake, uh, who just intuitively knew how to make great radio and and jingles that sounded right and how the music would integrate with the jocks. I mean, uh, clearly there are visionary programmers out there who really didn't need research, but for the rest of us, it really is an important tool, and I could see that it was missing. It was happening on the TV side. Maggot was working for Channel 7 in Detroit at that time. In fact, I actually got to do some work for Channel 7 while I worked for Maggot long before I ended Very up cool. uh, as part of the ABC group. But uh, radio was not a big part of Maggot's uh, work until I got there, and there were a small group of us that loved radio, and we kind of broke off into the radio division, and it was great. We had really big clients. We worked for the RKOs and the Bonnevilles and the ABCs, wow. and yeah, a lot of really big radio companies, and frankly, it was a great learning experience. I mean, imagine being a 25-year-old and flying into KHJ in Los Angeles and, you know, WRKO. And, I, you know, it was really cool. WJR was one of the uh, clients of uh, Maggot. And, you know, here's a station that I couldn't get arrested at two years ago. Uh, I actually applied for a producer's job with Mike Worf, who did the Kaleidoscope uh, program every day on WJR, which was kind of like a podcast, really. They were like little mini documentaries. And I applied to actually be a writer for Mike Worf and didn't get the job. And here a year later, I'm, I'm back doing audience research for the great wow. voice of the Great Lakes. Uh, so it was, really, I, it was a really heady experience, and it was really exciting. And thank God Tom Bender, who was program director of Riff, hired us. Uh, called me directly. Uh, his uh, night jock, uh, Sheila Rushlow, was a former student of mine at Michigan State, and uh, she was a big fan, and she said, you know, you ought to talk to this Fred Jacobs guy. He's a good guy, and he could really help with research, and Bender called, and I assigned myself to the Riff account and did a research study for them, and it was the first one that ABC Radio had ever done. You know, when, wow. when you would talk to Rick Sklar, who was the programming guru of ABC about research, He'd say, arbitrage your research. If you want to know what's going on, look in the book. 
But the problem was Arbitron was just, you know, day parts and demographics. I mean, it didn't talk about why people listened and the feeling that they get from listening to a great radio station or a great personality. So that's where I came in with audience research to kind of provide some insights into why people were doing what they were doing. And it was early enough in the game, Ron, that it worked. And, you know, you ruffled some fe- some feathers, Fred, because, you know, a couple of things crossed my mind as you were giving that answer. First off, I look at you and you say, of course, you can see the, you know, Fred Jacobs, he's accomplished, he's distinguished. But I've seen pictures of you as a young man. You look like a surfer slash volleyball player. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm amazed that anybody even took you seriously. No disrespect, but you know what I'm talking about. But the yes. second thing I want to ask, and this is, I want to take a deep doubt dive into this is is you ruffled some feathers stations like wabx who took pride in not being what you, what riff was you shook up the game before anybody knew what was going on what would talk about that dynamic because here you are at riff somebody's obviously got you you got someone's ear but their competitors are like what's this this is going to ruin radio what was that like um <laughs> I know there's a lot there to unpack. So Well, I, I didn't really think about it that way. I mean, I, I had a tremendous amount of respect for ABX, believe it or not. Uh, when I was at Michigan State, I did a research study for them. Uh, John Detz was the uh, general manager, and he welcomed me into the radio station, and I got to sit in on some jock meetings uh, Dan Carlisle, who I'm really good friends with today, does not remember me, and it's probably just as well for all the reasons you just uh, indicated. But yeah, I got to sit in on some jock meetings and really understand what made that place tick. But, you know, years later at, at Riff, I mean, remember, there were, at, at one point, four quote-unquote AOR, album-oriented rock stations in Detroit. You know, there was ABX, W4, WRIF, and Wheels. And what was interesting is that, you know, for the listener, it had to be the greatest thing ever because here you had these degrees of danger, if you will. You know, you you could listen to any of the four rock stations or all four of them, and you could hear the best of new music, older stuff, different kinds of jocks and their personalities. And, you know, I I got indoctrinated into the ABC way. I mean, yes, it was corporate, no question about that. I mean, all the stations had the same logos, you know, that that famous racetrack shape, uh, or as Tom Bender used to say, Valium-shaped. I guess it just sort of depends. (laughs) But, um, you know, it, it... it was really an exciting time to be in radio. You know, the, the thing that I remember most about the Riff years actually working inside the radio station was just how influential radio was in Detroiters' lives. I mean, you, you, you may remember, it seemed like every car on the road had a bumper sticker, and on that bumper sticker was a, or on that bumper was a, a radio station sticker. And it it explained who you were as a person. You know, if it was a WDRQ sticker, okay, I know what that person's into. And if it was an ABX sticker, you kind of had a measure of that guy. So, I mean, very much your personality and who you were was a reflection of what you listened to. And I remembered, you know, in the early days of, like, personal ads in the Metro Times, people would actually, when they would describe themselves... 
and what they did and what kind of person they were and what they were into, they would oftentimes say, I'm a Riff fan or I'm an ABX listener yes. or whatever it may be. And, and that's how you, in some way, define the kind of music person or media person that you were. So, my God, what a, what a great time to work in the business. Well, I don't want to jump ahead of myself because there's a few questions I have about Riff. So how do you go from to being a consultant for Riff to becoming the PD? Talk about that transition. How did that come to pass? Well, <laughs> let's see. How to, how to say this uh, <laughs> diplomatically. Um, I, I felt after two years of being a full-time audience researcher and, and flying in and out of markets, and radio stations that I didn't know enough about the day-to-day operations of a radio station. I mean, here we were armed with this great research, but I I didn't have that visceral, emotional connection to what it's like when the rating book comes out and what it's like to go to an event and interact with the audience. I mean, that was just stuff that I observed as a fan, not as an employee of a station. So I knew I had to go to work for a radio company or a radio station at some point. And when I delivered the research to Riff, uh, both Bender and Jay Hoker, our general manager, uh, called me and and said, hey, you know, this was a great project. It was an eye-opener. We learned a lot. We'd like to bring you in and actually do this stuff on a regular basis for us. And that's all I needed to hear. I mean, it was an opportunity to come back to Detroit from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which sounds as bad as it, as it or is as bad as it sounds, and certainly was back in the 70s. It was not a fun place to live for a city boy. And so uh, I grabbed at the opportunity, moved back to Detroit, and really had a great time at Riff. I mean, Bender pretty much let me do what I needed to do as long as I was getting my research stuff done. But I got to move around from department to department. I actually carried a list at one point and sold time, which was very instructive. I realized I wasn't good at it and I didn't enjoy it, but to do it for a year was highly instructive and gave me a degree of empathy uh, for so you got to just department. go through the station and learn every every job, it sounds like. To a great degree, I got to wander around and, and do all that stuff. And, the and so what year was this? I'm, was sorry to cut you off. I'm sorry to cut you off, but what year was this and who, who was on the air? 78, 79. And um, Bender let me shadow him to a great degree. I mean, I was a fixture in his office. And so, you know, there would be this litany of people that would, you know, walk in and ask him questions you know, some good ones, some stupid ones, some philosophical ones. And I got to watch this brilliant guy program his radio station. And, you know, a new album would come in, you know, from Bob Seger. And, you know, how how are you going to program this thing, Tom? Are we just going to track the thing all the way through? Are we going to uh, play some selected tracks for a week and see what sticks to the wall? You know, all that stuff. I got to actually sort of shadow box uh, with Tom, um, and it was, it, was re- it was really helpful. I mean, when I actually became program director a few years later, even though I only knew the tip of the iceberg <laughs> of programming, uh, having had the opportunity to see the radio station through Tom Bender's eyes was critically important in, in my learning process. A, because he was really good, 
and and B because it was an opportunity for me to be able to kind of get the feel of it without having to make any mistakes. And I made my mistakes later, but yeah, it, uh, during those years, it was all learning, and it was great. What I wanted to ask you specifically is you, you went through and, and you, you learned a lot of those jobs, but as a researcher, how do you come in as PD? Because one of your responsibilities is to air check the talent, and you, had, you already had an all-star. Talk about, I mean, wasn't J.J. in the morning crew? Who else was on the air at the Rift that you were responsible for at that time? So uh, we, we kind of ended up adopting the Channel 7 philosophy of we got who you wanted. <laughs> uh, when they put together their superhero lineup of Bill Bonds and John Kelly and Marilyn Turner and Dave Diles and Jerry Hodak, I mean, ultimately, that's what we ended up doing at Riff. And during uh, Bender's time there, that's uh, in a fairly short period of time. Uh, Arthur, of course, was, was there and was a fixture. By that point, he'd already been on the radio station for 15 years, which seemed like eons, right? Uh, but then J.J. and the morning crew came over from W4. Uh, Ken Calvert, who had been with ABX in the early years, was a record guy for uh, CBS Records, and he became the midday person. Uh, Karen Savelli uh, came over, I believe, from W4, but it may have been ABX at that point. I can't remember even where where we brought her in from, but she came in at nights. Um, I believe I brought Costan in at a later point. We already had Carl Coffey. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> Carl Coffey was doing nights who could have been morning man everywhere, anywhere else. Exactly right. Work. I mean, it was such a super staff. Uh, I, I got to hire Peter Werby, who was an institution uh, mm-hmm. in the market in the early years. And Peter was a part-timer. I mean, back in those days, if you were a part-timer at Riff, you were in the union, and it was a very lucrative gig. I mean, it paid extremely well. You were on a great set of call letters. And, you know, when uh, Arthur would take one of his many weeks off, you, you <laughs> very likely got to sit in for him in afternoon drive. So being a part-timer at, at Riff was an incredibly great gig, not like it is today, where if you're a part-timer at a radio station, you're probably driving an Uber and working for DoorDash at the same time. Back then, I mean, you could really make a living and a nice living being a part-time jock uh, for ABC. It was pretty cool. And competitive. Could you talk about the dynamic as a program director? Your job lives and dies with how you're doing against the competition in Detroit at the time. I mean, it's still a rock and roll city, but I'm, you mentioned it earlier. You had all these rock and roll stations, all distinctively different, but all trying to get the same market, the same audience. What was that? That had to be a crazy time in radio for you. It was really intense. I mean, as a program director and those people who you talked to who worked with me back then or unfortunately worked for me back then, uh, can can tell you all about that. I mean, I was high energy, caffeinated, stressed out, pretty much twenty four seven. I mean, I we gotta I beat wheels. In- we gotta beat wheels. We gotta beat wheels. <laughs> well, exactly. And I, I mean, a I have an incredibly strong work ethic. I I always have. And and b to be honest with you, when you take over programming your favorite radio station in your hometown, I mean, all you can think about is don't screw it up. I mean, don't 
blow this thing. I mean, this is an unbelievably golden opportunity here to take over Riff. It frankly would have been a lot easier taking over MMS in Cleveland or KLOS in Los Angeles because even though I knew those were great radio stations, I didn't grow up with them. I didn't grow up in Cleveland or L.A. I mean, you only have partial knowledge when you move somewhere and you take over a programming job. You don't have that emotional bond with a market or a station. But with Riff, I had that. And so there was that constant pressure of, you know, do good things, make the radio station better than when you came. And again, competitively, I mean, we had uh, great competitors across the dial, and it was intense. And the other thing that, that happened around that same period was the ratings went from quarterly to monthly. So you can kind of do the math. Instead of throwing up four times a year uh, for a couple of days before the numbers would come out, uh, you, would, you would be nauseous and, and worthless uh, 12 times a year uh, dealing with monthly ratings. And the monthlies, especially in the early years, bounced around a little bit more. They didn't really have that stability that they uh, kind of had later. Now they're just as bad, but that's another story. But, but back then they really could bounce around, and nobody really knew how to deal with them because they were, it was just like a new currency. So right. everybody probably took them a little more serious than we should have, but, I mean, they were the numbers, and you live and die with the book. I mean, that's where your rates get set. That's what you know, pays for the rift building and pays for all those hefty salaries and all that stuff. I mean, you've got to keep your numbers up and dominant. So there was a ton of pressure. And, I mean, believe it or not, I mean, yeah, I've been involved with RIF now for decades. I still continue to consult them today. Uh, thank you, Caroline Beasley and the, the Detroit team. But, you know, I actually only programmed there for two years, from 81 to 83. And honestly, Ron, that was enough. I mean, I, I learned that being on the front lines of a major market radio station, it's like combat pay for me. And honestly, yeah. I, I had, you know, not to take anything away from, from the veterans who have given so much to our country, but I had my own form of PTSD. And I yeah. needed to get away from it, and it was, it was probably unhealthy for me. And I waited for a great book and walked. <laughs> and uh, we have there's, – there's, the story is just beginning at this point. But before we leave Riff, I, I, one of my favorite stories that I've heard you tell is – and it kind of comes back to research. As you, you know, you, you do this, do this. But could you tell – one of my favorite stories you tell is when, in, when Arthur P. played uh, a Stevie Ray Vaughan record back-to-back, because people remembered that. Could you tell that story? So uh, the Stevie Ray Vaughan record came in, and a uh, brand-new artist, right? Nobody, nobody. And, and, you know, there are those moments where, as a programmer or a music director, you needle-drop a record. <laughs> that's, that's the term, you know. And uh, I, my, my memory is, is that uh, Side A Cut One was Pride and Joy, uh, on on that record, and I remember just hearing it and, and just going, "Holy crap, this is a hit!" I mean, I mean, there's not that many times where that happens, where a record just comes out and grabs you by the throat and says, "Play me," I, I I'm a classic, I'm I'm great, and so I thought, you know what? 
perfect opportunity here for Arthur. This was he was on the air at that point, and I literally walked in the studio, handed him the record, and said, "Play this." And he put it on. He played it, and he was enjoying it as much as I was. And I'm not sure whether he said it to me or I said it to him, but one of us said to the other, "Play it again." And so, sure enough, the record ends, and Arthur opens the mic, picks up the tone arm, and says something like, "Feels so good, I gotta do it again." And so he did. And people remembered that for years. We would do focus groups years later, and and talk about what people were enjoying about the station or why they liked art and all that kind of thing. And that crazy Stevie Ray Vaughan story would come up. I mean, people remembered that moment because it, it that doesn't happen on the radio very often, right? Where somebody kind of breaks format, if you will, but in a really human, emotional way. And that taught me a lot. I mean, in that little moment, because as much as I'm into research, Ron, I mean, those are the moments that go beyond yeah. research. I mean, they really transcend numbers and digits and ratings and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're they're, they're what really make a personality special. And Arthur had a lot of that anyway. But I think it was moments like that that kind of helped cement you know, what what he meant and his joy for the music and entertaining listeners in Detroit. And I'm sure that uh, that cut, that exact cut, him saying that is on more than a few cassette tapes in a closet somewhere. Well, um, you, you know, you wish you could program something like that every few weeks, but you can't. You know, you you can't fake that visceral enthusiasm that, that you have for a record or an artist or whatever it may be. It... it you know, as cliche as it sounds, it's got to be organic. It's got to be something that's real. Yeah. Well, and you think, as you say that, I think about the old uh, intros that Ken Calvert would do when Arthur P. would stroll in late. Those were legendary. And, and I've believe me, I've tried. I've done a lot of calls and tried to get somebody with a cut, and I can't find It doesn't appear that that even exists anymore. Um, all right, so obviously, you know, Riff, you know, is as is, is, is big a dream as it was, very stressful job. You decide, okay, it's time to step away. I gave him a good book. Did you have a plan of what you were going to do, or you were just like, let's let's figure out from there? We, zero plan. Talk about because you're jumping off a cliff, Fred. Yeah, I um, I had I had a really uh, cool little Mazda RX-7 <laughs> at at the time. Those were cool, man. Oh, I mean the two, I mean the program director's car, right? And a silver silver RX-7. And I literally got in that car, loaded up a bunch of cassettes. Uh, I, I remember them vividly. I mean, you know, one was The River by Bruce Sp Springsteen. I mean, oh, my God, that, that got me yeah. through a lot. And I, I basically just headed east. You know, I just needed time. And I went through upstate New York and the Finger Lakes area and Lake Placid and down through New York City where I had lived. And I, I just took a couple of weeks and aired it out, to be honest with you. And I was by myself, which was fine <laughs> at, at that time. And, and I started thinking about what I was going to do. It, and it was, the, it was the beginning of the summer. And uh, Ed Christian, who uh, was the head uh, and owner of Saga Communications uh, out of Gross Point Farms, uh, at the time, uh, he didn't own the company. It was called Josephson. 
um, a guy named Marvin Josephson on the radio stations. And I knew Ed from Michigan State, believe it or not. I was his faculty advisor, which was a joke, because Ed knew more about radio in uh, one finger than I knew in my entire body. So Ed and I became good friends. And he called me up, and he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, come do some research for me. You know, think about it over the summer. Look for jobs. Uh, but do some research for my stations cheaply. Um, and, uh, you know, then you'll figure out what you're going to do. And I thought, you know what? That's a great idea. And he owned killer radio stations in Milwaukee and Norfolk and Columbus and places like that. So it was good for me to kind of get my research chops uh, back. And I talked to a number of existing research companies because by now there were quite a few uh, and had a great opportunity uh, to uh, go to work for one. Obviously, you had the idea why you were at Riff, but talk to me about how you, uh, you guys, you and Tom, decided to, to pursue this new format because it was revolution. It's hard to believe that that started in the 80s. It's been that long. I was at Riff uh, as program director. We were doing a fair amount of research, of course. How could we not? And uh, we started hearing in the research two different messages. Uh, the younger people uh, in the audience, and back then the demographic was a little different than it is today. Our target demographic was 12 to 34. That was the sweet spot. <laughs> Those were the baby boomers. And our teens were listening to the radio station and going, you know, I like the new stuff, but when you guys keep playing the Beatles and the Who and all that stuff, it, it really kind of feels dated. And then on the other side, our older audience, our kind of early 30s listeners, were listening to some of the new stuff coming out and going, eh, I don't know if I'm really enjoying what's going on here. I don't like this corporate rock, and who's this Elvis Costello guy, and I'm not sure about the cars. And so as, as the program director of stations like Riff and Wheels and W4, I mean, you kind of had to play everything because that was the definition of the format. But, you know, the consultant in me started thinking, what if you could actually split the format out and create a version of it that really catered to the older stuff, uh, that really captured the older audience right where they lived, the stuff they grew up with. And so Bender and I started having these late-night conversations. Uh, he was in Dallas at this point, and he was the general manager of a damaged AM news station that was dying. I mean, it was in big trouble, and he was looking for a format. And back in those days, playing music on AM was not totally stupid. Uh, you could actually uh, have an audience and still, still make it work. Right. And so we actually started thinking about maybe this kind of format that we're thinking about could become a reality on your AM station. And, I mean, I remember he and I spent hours at his apartment literally going through his albums cut by cut, kind of deciding, yeah, that would fit, no, that would not, that type of thing. And uh, it was a very broad collection of older stuff. But the bottom line, it was kind of meet the Beatles 1964 through the cars, 1978. We kind of cut it off at that point, sort of arbitrarily, right. and it worked. And we put it on Tom's AM station. The station was called K-Rocks, uh, K-R-Q-X. Uh, it was originally called Good Time Rock and Roll. 
believe it or not. Uh, we did some, I did some focus groups for the station early on, and while listeners loved it, they could not parrot back the slogan. And when I finally just said, okay, the slogan is good time rock and roll, they kind of looked at me and went, meh, like, eh, that's not really kind of what it is. And I said, well, how would you guys describe it? And a number of people said, I would call the music classic. You know, that's really what it is. And Bender and I just yeah. looked at each other and said, let's call it classic rock and roll or classic rock. And that slogan had been used in radio off and on over the past couple of years, but nobody made it work. I mean, I, I think there were some people who got onto the same slogan idea that we did, but didn't really have the format underneath it right. And, and we had the slogan and the format. And that was kind of the, the key. So when, when I started my own consulting company, uh, I had a lot of Ed Christian stations to work for, but my side project, my side hustle, was seeing if I could lift classic rock off the ground. And Ron, I spent two years pitching this format to anybody who would take my calls. And back in those days, I didn't know anybody. I knew the ABC family, and beyond that, I was totally unnetworked. So people would not take my calls, and I had a hell of a time. And I was about ready to give up on the thing. And I got a call from a guy named Jeff Crow, who was programming this loser Class A AC station out of Charlotte, Michigan. It was the fourth AC in the Lansing market. And Jeff had seen me speak at the Great Lakes Radio Conference the year before about classic rock and this format idea that I had. And they were just desperate enough to actually think maybe we should do that. And he got his boss, who owned the station, Bob Ottaway, to uh, meet me in Lansing. We had uh, lunch at Beggar's Banquet, and I pitched the format uh, to Bob and, and Jeff, and they said, let's do it. And we signed the thing on, and it exploded. And then that's it. You know how it works in radio. It's a lemming business. Uh, once you get one win, everybody's like, whoa, what's going on? And it wasn't long before I signed Kansas City, Jay Hoker, the, my boss at Riff started his own broadcast company and wanted to go classic wow. rock in Kansas City. So we signed on the Fox, and then uh, Los Angeles came in, Chicago came in, CSX. Bender was now back in Detroit, and it was time to do classic rock in Detroit. I mean, you know, just, yeah. just imagine, you know, being Tom Bender and Fred Jacobson, having somebody come in and doing classic rock across the street. Oh, no way. So Bender was wise enough to know, you know what, this is the moment where we got to make this happen. And he flipped magic, which is what 94.7 was, uh, into CSX. And uh, it was a smash. So that's how it grew. Wow. And, Ron, nobody is as surprised as I am. And, you know, you said earlier that the format has endured for, you know, really 35 years. But it has. And... It's found new audiences and younger audiences and the kids of baby boomers and the grandkids of baby boomers. So it's been an amazing run, and its format is probably as viable today as it was 20 years ago. More so. And there's a couple questions in there. There's a lot to unpack in what you said. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you specifically is, well, branding is so important. And what I thought was brilliant, and I'm not sure how you sold it to the radio stations. I'm sure you were very persuasive. But I think a large part of especially at the beginning, 
is is the imaging you guys created for classic rock. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it a bunch of cassette tapes on top of each other, Eagles, the cars, what have you? I mean, who came up with that, and how important do you think imaging and, and, and branding was at the beginning? Well, here we go again with focus groups, which is to this day my go-to way of learning. I mean, all the focus groups we did among classic rock fans informed my thinking about what was important, what people valued, what buttons to push, that kind of thing. And believe it or not, when these formats would sign on in the market, one of the typical reactions that you'd get from new fans would be, it's like you broke into my house and stole my record collection or my cassette collection or my or CD collection, whatever it was. Right. So people would say that all the time. We would run those promos on the air. And so when it came time to actually put together, a, uh, it was actually an ad, and it was Chato Hill. Do you know Chato? Yeah, I Right. That. Chato's a local Detroit agency guy, and Chato had done a lot of the work for WNIC Back in the uh, uh, Jim and Jer, Harper and Gannon years, brilliant guy, just absolutely brilliant, really collaborative, a lot of fun. And Chato and I sat down to kind of figure out, all right, how was I going to market classic rock? And one of the depictions was these cassettes. And so we, and and I think you know, one of them was like homemade stuff, and there was a Bob Seger <laughs> cassette and right. all that. But it it very much was a reflection of that kind of emotional vibe that people got listening to these stations for the first time. So it was a great sync up. Honestly, Ron, it has been an easy format to market because the music is so damn powerful. And, and part of what I learned that I didn't really understand, two things. One is the power of nostalgia. I, I, I had some appreciation yes. of that before, but not like I do now. But the other part was the realization of how great this music really was. I mean, I, I kind of looked at the music that became, you know, classic rock, and I thought, well, you love that stuff because you grew up with it. True, I do love that stuff because I grew up with it, but you know what? That stuff's going to be around 100 years from now. I mean, people will be listening to Led Zeppelin and the Beatles, and they'll know who Eric Clapton was and all that. And, I mean, there's not too many periods in music where you can say that. So that was the lucky part, you know, growing up at the right time with, with the right music and that music being so incredibly powerful that it could transcend the years. Big piece of it, yeah. That's amazing. And, and so here's another question I want to ask you because when I think of classic rock, it's definitely evolved over the years. But, and you obviously remember the first couple stations that flipped to the classic rock format. But can you talk about when you realized that this had a life of its own and that it, you know, it was being kind of morphed all over the country because it got huge, it got big real fast, it, it reincarnated bands like the Eagles. It, 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 it just was like a fuel of fresh air. But when did you realize, okay, I think we're good, this is, this is taking off? Or did you ever think that? Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a paranoid programmer by nature, so you, <laughs> you never think you're, you're home. You know, you, you don't want to get too full of it. But, um, you know, when, I mean, the format marketed itself after a certain point. I mean, pe people called me. I didn't have to market anymore. And so from that standpoint, it was cool. The painful part and believe it or not, it was a painful part, is that 
the format really took down some great radio stations in some great markets. I mean, there were some big stations like Riff that didn't survive, that a classic rock station came in and literally decimated these stations. And the record labels were very unhappy with me because to a great degree, competing with a classic rock format generally meant playing less new music at the rock station. And so a lot of the record label people were really upset, really upset. I was a pariah. And I never, I mean, I never thought of myself that way. I always thought, hey, I'm just a nice guy who works in radio. And all of a sudden, I was this demon, you know, who was destroying new music out there. And it's like, wow, how did this happen? So, you know, I mean, for every wonderful thing that happened, I mean, you know, there were also those kind of sobering moments. But really, for the first, oh, wow, dozen years or so, there was always that fear that it would burn out. You know, hey, this is really great, but it won't last. Uh, People will get tired of hearing these records, that kind of thing. And so it probably took for me, Ron, well into the 90s and sustained successes to realize that, you know what, this this format's going to be okay. Um, It's real, and it, it can stand on its own. But all that said... I mean, there's a lot of really crappy classic rock stations out there, and and they're not doing particularly well. I mean, you still have to do the basics right. I mean, you you still need good personalities, and you need a morning show, and you need to market. I mean, you know, sometimes when a new format takes off, broadcasters would delude themselves that, oh, the format's just going to go on just because the music's so great. And especially today when music has become such a commodity, you know, I, you don't have to sit around with your cassette recorder listening to a radio station to record a song anymore. You can pull up Spotify anytime you want and hear that song. So what does a classic rock station do for you in 2023 that you can't get from Spotify? I mean, that's the question my stations are asking now. And that's, in many ways, a much bigger challenge than it was back in the 80s when, you know, we were the only station playing Jethro Tull and the Eagles, right? <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think uh, didn't Glenn Fry even give a tip of the hat to Classic Rock in their infamous documentary a couple years ago? Did you ever, did you ever see that? He, I mean, he didn't mention you by name or Tom, but he just said, well, we, you know. Right, I think there's a moment where Glenn Fry talks about how the band had broken up but they make the realization or they reach the realization that their music's been on the radio all these years in heavy rotation at classic rock stations, allowing the Hell Freezes Over tour to get off to the tremendous start that it did. Yeah, I mean, yes, I took a lot of pride when I watched that documentary. You know, the, the, the other kind of squishy part of it was most bands didn't want to think of themselves as being classic rock artists. You know, I mean, if you think about it... That meant you were a catalog artist. Exactly right. I mean, wanted to still, you know, release new music. And there was a period of time at these stations where we actually played more new music from classic rock artists. We came up with this idea of yesterday and today sets where, you know, we would play uh, an old Bob Seger classic and there would be a produced breaker yesterday and today from Bob Seger and it would go into his new song. And 
those were conceptually cool, and the audience always said, yeah, I wish you did more of those things, but they really didn't work particularly well. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the newer music from our old friends just didn't really stand the test of time like their old stuff did. Uh, and it was sad because I really thought that would be a way to keep things refreshed, and it just didn't work out that way. We really tried, and ultimately the audience rejected that. I mean, they really wanted to hear Life in the Fast Lane in Hotel California, not the new Don Henley song, with all respect to Don. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you know, you, you come in the back door into radio, you, 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 you go on to program one of the, the most popular Detroit rock stations of all time, you leave that, you create a, a, a little format called Classic Rock that has become one of the most popular formats here in 2023 around. Uh, most people would hang their career on that. You said, hold my beer, I got more to do. Talk about how your next project came to be, because eventually it was, like we said, you were more hands-off and it, it kind of took a life of its own. But talk about, talk about Jacob's Media, because that was started. We haven't even talked about the, the starting of that, but talk about how Jacob's Media kind of pivoted into the digital age because you were one of the first people to see that as well. So it, it, it comes back to research. And uh, in the 90s, uh, we had also done an alternative format called The Edge, which was going pretty well. We, we kind of, you know, the grunge thing happened right around the time that we introduced that format. So uh, another really cool timing thing. But um, radio stations back in the 90s started creating databases, email databases, and pretty much all they used them for was just promoting their rock block weekends or whatever. They'd do an email blast to, you know, several thousand core listeners, and it was a pretty good marketing technique. I started thinking, wait a minute, what if we use the email database as a research tool? I mean, here's people who are listening to the radio station. They know what's going on. Why don't we ask them how we're doing, what's going on, what they think of this, that type of thing. So I started writing questionnaires for a number of our clients. If they would start a new morning show, instead of having to wait until November for the rating book to come out, we'd get an early indication as to how the new morning show was doing and what the audience liked and didn't like and all that stuff. So I was doing all of that, and then 9-11 happens. What a lot of people don't remember about 9-11, but if you were in radio, you remember, yes, a horrific event on September 11th. That was also the beginning of the fall book that year. And all these radio stations had TV booked, contests ready to go, all that kind of stuff. And 9-11 goes down, and everybody's like, whoa, what do we do? I mean, can we do all this normal radio stuff, or is that inappropriate? So I get calls from my clients, and I don't know what to tell them. I mean, I, nobody had ever been through anything like 9-11 before, and there were, there were no answers to these questions. And I thought, you know what, maybe this is the moment. So I wrote a questionnaire. I got about 40 stations on board, and we did a survey among 40 stations' core audience about how people were thinking and feeling and doing and all that stuff, and it was great. In 48 hours, we got thousands of returns, and wow. that, that's when the light bulb went off, and I started thinking, you know what, we could do this with anything. Let's look at technology, because at that point, the Internet was really beginning to go strong. 
Streaming was beginning to happen. I mean, people still had dial-up for the most part, but you could definitely see that there were things happening out there. Satellite radio was beginning to come on, and I thought, you know what? Let's create a tech poll. That's what it was called then. Now it's tech survey. But back then it was tech poll. And let's bring together a group of radio stations, and let's find out what are listeners doing when they're not listening to us. And that's kind of how the whole thing kind of broke out. And we started doing them every year around January. And then things happened, right? The iPhone came out. Facebook happened. (laughs) YouTube got invented. I mean, all that stuff. And Tech Survey was there to be able to track all that stuff. And that's really where we got the idea to start the mobile app company, Jake Apps. I mean, we really saw you know, kind of the insides of what was happening with smartphones and how they were not just tools, but they were appendages of people. And when the app program happened, my brother Paul and I looked at each other and said, you know what, Um, these phones can be used for streaming. And considering that Walkmans basically don't exist anymore. And it was really our digital guy, Tim Davis, who helped us through that and helped us identify the opportunity. But uh, we started uh, the mobile apps company in uh, about 100 days after Apple opened the App Store in 2008. We had no business doing it. The economy was horrible. We were getting fired left and right by radio stations that literally were hemorrhaging money at, at that point. And we knew nothing about software. So it was a perfect opportunity to start a mobile apps company. And, and Why we did. Not? And, and the company is still going strong. Uh, we've developed 1,300 apps uh, or more at this point on uh, both the uh, iOS and Android platforms. And uh, a lot of radio stations and, and radio-ish uh, companies uh, use our apps today. It's, it's really been cool, and it's been a great entry into things and that's how we got into the car i mean you know it it wasn't that we're from detroit but uh when apps started showing up on uh, touchscreens on uh, fords on fords uh we were fortunate enough to be at the consumer electronics show that year and we met all the guys at ford who were developing that technology so you know one thing begets the other when 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 you're cranking hard and you're trying to innovate, it doesn't always work, but it typically opens doors and you end up meeting people where you can connect other dots. And that's really been, for my company and me, I think a big part of why things have generally worked. All that being said, Ron, you're asking me about the successes, you're not asking me about the failures, and I appreciate that, because they come <laughs> along too. I mean, you, you can't win without losing along the way, and that's just sort of part you know, of I'm that. a firm believer in that. I want to interrupt there because that's, I mean, you talk to, like, baseball players. They don't learn anything when they win, or sport athletes. They don't. They learn when they lose, and it's the same thing, but you just have to how to, okay, we lost, but why did we lose? You tweak it a little bit, and that's how success happens, no? Exactly. I mean, you, you, you have to look at the areas where you screwed up, you know, where you jumped to a conclusion, you read the research wrong, you read the audience wrong, you know, uh, you got ahead of your skis, I mean, you know, all, all that stuff. And I've, I've, I've made them. I mean, fortunately, there haven't been any, you know, terrible ones. Uh, but 
you know, not all of our clients have, have won in the ratings. Most of them have, but, you know, there have been some uh, fire ships. There's no question about that. But, you, yeah, if you don't learn from them and learn what not to do, you know, sometimes there's, you know, there's a, a time that you want to stand on a desk and go, don't do this, and there's other times where you want to just zip it up. And I've kind of learned you know, over the last 40 years or so, the company's 40 years old in September, believe wow. it or not. And, wow. uh, you know, you learn after a while, you know, it's the old Kenny Rogers, know when to hold them, fold them, and walk. And it's true. Well, you've been ahead of the game all the way through because, you know, you, you were talking about CAS, you talked about, because, but I do have some questions about how Jacob's media has evolved with the technology, but you mentioned something in your last answer I wanted to touch on before we move on. You know, and you've pointed out to me that you know radio still garners the lion's share of listenership. It's just that there's so many more choices. But no one can deny that since 2000, and you know, even probably a little bit before when the internet came, radio has slowly. Radio used to be part of more people's lives on a daily basis, and there's lots of finger pointing on why is to that happen you know people point to the people being able to to buy multiple radio stations and collect them like their baseball cards but i contend that the technology and the way we consume things is more responsible what's your take on that i think that's i think ultimately that's correct i think this would have happened anyway uh because of the way the technology has evolved i think if there's a place where the radio industry maybe could look back and go, you know, we we should have zigged when we zagged. <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, and I'm, I'm going to get a little wonky on you. I mean, you know this stuff. I'm not sure that other people listening will as much. But the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was a game changer for radio and I think ultimately laid the bricks down for things getting screwed up like they have today. But that was the Congressional Act. And by the way, Bill Clinton was president, and I've heard him actually say one of the big regrets of his eight years in office was letting that law get passed without fighting it harder. That was the law that allowed radio companies to consolidate and own hundreds of radio stations across the country, but also to be able to own six, seven radio stations in a particular market. And while that might have been economically good for a lot of radio companies for a number of years, it also, I think, led to a period of arrogance and also thinking, hey, where else are they going to go? I mean, we own all the good radio stations in town. Right. And what they didn't realize, where else are they going to go? They're going to go to the Internet. And they're going to go to satellite radio. And they're going to listen to podcasts. And they're going to do all this stuff. And they don't need your transmitters and your towers. There's other ways to get entertainment. So I think that arrogance piece was clearly not productive. And then I think the other part of it is that there were opportunities back in the early 2000s for radio companies to buy technology companies, uh, to buy Pandora when it was on its knees, 
maybe even to buy Sirius or XM before the merger happened, and they didn't do it. You know, they, they couldn't acknowledge that there was a there there to these companies. I think they were afraid to admit that there could actually be another viable way into audio entertainment besides the radio. And so they all walked away from, I think, great opportunities. But, you know, the history of this, I mean, Kodak, you know, with their great film business, missed digital completely, and that really helped destroy them. But they developed digital. I mean, they had the technology yeah. before anybody else, and, and they were so in denial about... Uh, what digital could be, and they were so afraid of disrupting themselves that they let other people run the technology. And I, I think some of this, Ron, is human nature. You know, when when you're on top of the heap and it's going really well and it's pretty easy, and radio back then was a pretty easy business. I mean, a lot of stations were kicking off margins of 30, 40, 50 percent. And, mm -hmm. you know, you go through decades like that, and you, you kind of lose your edge, you know? You, you don't yeah. have that, that hunger that you used to have, and that's when you get vulnerable, and that's when innovation can disrupt you, and that's what we're looking at today. I mean, radio's not going anywhere, but it's not what it was. It'll probably never be that again. We do have a slow leak. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's no question about it. It's not a fast leak, fortunately, um, but it is a slow leak, and... This is a tough time for radio companies, and that's why you see them all diversifying like crazy. They're starting podcasting divisions and everything else just to make sure that they become multimedia companies and don't get chained into their transmitters right. and their towers. So it's a little different than when I was working at Riff. Yeah. Well, and I've heard you say it's more competitive now, and there's some validity to that. But to your point, Jacob's Media, which – is I mean it, to me, it's it's probably I, I don't know of another company that sole, solely looks out for the medium of radio, which is what you do, Thank and you're you. pivoting and trying to say, okay, this is what where radio is going, and you write daily daily blogs about it, and you're always an advocate of radio. And one of the things that I love that you do, and I, I watched the the, uh, the video that you made from this last CES. I've been following following CES since 2012. Um, First off, in your answer, if you could talk a little bit about what CES, CES is for, for, for some of my viewers and listeners who might not know. But one of the things that I love about how you cover CES is you do it from a radio perspective. You know, it's good to be, okay, what's the latest technology? But you go with the, it, this is our objective. How, how can we take this new technology and service radio? Talk about how, how Jacob's Media has evolved. and Because, I mean, it's, it's a thing now. People tune into you to see your annual report from the CES in Vegas. So CES is a remarkable event. I mean, for those who don't know, uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, as it used to be called, is the biggest trade show uh, in the world. It's all about innovation in ways that you can't even imagine it, but certainly from a media, technology, electronic uh, point of view. We started going after we launched the mobile app company thinking, hey, we're tech guys now. <laughs> we had no idea. And as I mentioned earlier, that's when we actually saw all the cars at CES. It looked like the Detroit Auto Show, 
except nobody was looking under the hood. Everybody was looking at the dashboard. And that's when we connected those dots that uh, radio in the car was changing, going to change, and, of course, um, it has. So we've been going out to CES every year for the last, I think, 14, 15 years and writing about it and right, doing those kind of presentations. And I had a client call about six years ago, Bill Hendrick, who ran uh, Cox Radio, and he gets on the phone with me. This was probably September. CES every year is in early January, first week. And Bill gets on the phone with me and says, well, I've got the bug. You have convinced me I really should go to CES. And I said, you know, that would be great. We're going. We'll have dinner together one night. He says, oh, I'm not going. I said, wait, I thought you said you were going. He says, no, I want to go. But you have also convinced me that it is so crowded and there's so much stuff there that I would go and, and just screw it all up. I wouldn't know where to go. I wouldn't know the things I should see. It, it just would be a meaningless thing. Now, you guys knowing what you know about CES and about radio, if you could curate a tour for me and actually take me to the areas that would really be productive for my business in the coming year, I'd pay for that. And I thought, whoa, that's kind of interesting. I've seen tours going around CES before. I'm not mm. quite sure who does them or why. And believe it or not, we knew, know Gary Shapiro, who is the CEO of CES. Believe it or not, he lives in Birmingham, Michigan, and commutes to Washington, D.C., but he lives in the metro Detroit area, and I met him a number of years ago. He spoke at our conferences, and I called him, and I said, hey, tell me about CES tours. And he said, Fred, we've been doing them forever. You can hire us, help curate the tour that you want to do, and we'll make it work. And so we've been doing tours where we schlep around radio people uh, around the Las Vegas Convention Center. We've done it for the last five years. It started out as just CEOs and uh, C-types, uh, but now it's really kind of running the gamut. We had Sherry Lynch, uh, who's the uh, uh, half the morning show at the Bob and Sherry syndicated morning show, uh, go with us this year. We have public radio people now that come with us on the tour, Christian radio people. It, it, it's really a nice kind of melting pot of uh, radio people. But that's exactly it. It's a curated tour. The emphasis is on technology that will have an impact on our business. And it, it's a lot of fun. And, and, you know, the cool part about it is when I started going to CES uh, early on, and it was Buzz Knight who was the guy who really pushed me into doing this. I mean, Liberally, there were maybe 20 radio people going to CES every year. You never ran into them, you know. I mean, if you did, it was like, oh, my God, look, there's Art Volo. Um, I mean, Art was going right. pretty yeah. early on, by the way, of course. Yeah. But now I would say there's probably upwards of two, three, four hundred people uh, from the radio business who are going to CES, if not every year, every other year. It's great. It's a really cool way to start the year. It's inconvenient, you know, it's the first week in January, so the last thing you want to do after the holidays is schlep out there and, and deal with, you know, 150,000 people uh, running around the Las, Las Vegas Convention Center. But it, it is truly an inspiring event, and if it's on your bucket list, you should go. Um, 
And if you can do it, come with us. You know, we'd love to, we'd love to take you. Well, I tell you, I, me and my wife we were going to go. The first year we were going to go, uh, COVID happened because, mm. like, that was when COVID was. I mean, we were hearing the news of what was going on in, in Asia. You got, but uh, you, you got to do it. We're as going. We lovingly uh, tell our tourists, wear comfortable shoes. <laughs> well, I'm fascinated, and and this is what I'm excited. And this is why I want to go is because some of these cool things, you know, dealing with radio. But then you'll see things that are. So mind blowing. Like I think one of the things you talked about was the flying car, and and there's all this crazy technology, and it's interesting to see how people want to utilize that technology. And sometimes it's so ridiculous. I think one of the things you highlighted was a toilet. It's fascinating where where technology can go. Yeah, I mean, you know, you see everything out there. You see the crackpot stuff. You know, there's there's a kind of beginners exhibit called Eureka Park. It's like bootstrap entrepreneurs who have invented stuff. And, you know, it's everything from the, you know, smart kitty litter box to the Peloton, which was actually, the the Peloton bikes were actually first displayed at Eureka Park at CES a number of years ago. So it's, it's like kind of walking through a tech flea market. You have to kind of sift through the junk in order to find the, the really cool stuff, but it's there. And, it, it's really a delight. I mean, it's, it's really become kind of a requirement for me now. I mean, even if we weren't doing the tours, I would go anyway. Um, it's kind of part of my learning regimen. You know, I, I, I can't say to people, hey, I think this is coming, or I think this is something that you should be aware of, or I think your business could really benefit greatly by taking a look at this technology if I don't walk the walk and actually show up at the thing right. and and put in the time and the energy to see what's going on. So I'm doing it. You know, another thing, and I, I almost forgot to ask you about this. We're talking about the things that are coming. I, I don't know, and, I, and maybe you don't know, but I heard, is it true that they're taking AM radio capability out of new cars? Is that going to happen? It's already happening. You heard this? Um, and the problem, and I'm making air quotes here, um, is electric cars. So there's an insulation issue that the automakers can work around. I mean, there is a technical solution to it. It'll cost a little bit more money to do if they have the will to do it. And what seems to be happening, Ron, is that many of the manufacturers are just saying, you know what, we're making electric cars, and this is a great excuse to walk away from AM radio. And they're just not including it. It might be an option in some vehicles. I mean, one of the new trends, believe it or not, is microtransactions. Mm. So BMW is doing this in some countries now where you buy a BMW and you can get heated seats for $18 a month. It's a subscription. And so these microtransactions are going to become popular if the automakers have anything to say about it. And they could be for things like heated seats or heating steering wheels. They could also be for various aspects of your infotainment system. Um, Are you willing to pay for AM radio? Are you willing to pay for FM radio? I mean, if one happens, might not the other? So we're watching these things very carefully. And I'll tell you, Tesla, of course, uh, has kind of led the charge on getting rid of AM radio, but... 
Ford, right? I mean, wouldn't you think there would be AM radios in Ford until the end of time? So you look at that new F-150 Lightning truck, right? You know, unbelievable vehicle, biggest selling uh, vehicle in the world. Ford makes the electric version of it. Last year, they put on a whip antenna. It gets AM radio. The new F-150 Lightning by Ford, no AM radio. This is Ford. I mean, Elon Musk, you might expect, would kind of go, screw AM radio, I don't care, it's stupid, it's unhip. But Ford, in their trucks, you know, the same trucks that farmers drive around Iowa fields, I mean, that's not going to have a built-in AM radio. But that's, that's kind of our world at this point. And, you know, the radio industry needs, I think, you know, to do a more formidable, formidable job of making our case to the automakers. But also, you know, Congress is getting involved. Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts, I think, uh, gets it. And uh, hopefully we'll be pushing that AM radio will have to be included in cars that are produced in America. But that doesn't mean he's going to be successful. <laughs> so, uh, you know. I just, can't, I just can't imagine living in a world where paying for AM radio as a premium, that to me that whole idea is crazy. Well. Because that's where it started. Exactly. But, you know, keep in mind, if you're under the age of 40, you probably don't even know what AM radio is. And, I mean, things move and things change, and, and we, we have to adapt to the changes out there. So, you know, it, it's like everything else we'll see, but this thing's on the table. Well, I got to tell you, um, you, you know, when I talk about Fred Jacobs, and I'm, I'm, I'm one of the many folks who subscribes to your daily blog, and, and it's funny, some of the conversations I'll have people that are in the industry – we always are baffled at how you have time to write these every single day. And my biggest response when I bring this up is, so I've, I've heard this said a couple times, I don't have time to read everyone. <laughs> and, and, and we're amazed that you have time to, first off, where you come up with the subject, because it's always radio-related. It all always serves radio as a medium. Uh, I, I say that to ask you this, Fred, as I, as I hit my microphone. What, in your purview, since 1983, Jacobs Media has, has been in existence. You guys have evolved so many times and, and become so many different things to so many different radio stations. Talk about how Jacobs Media has evolved and where you see it moving forward. So I, w- I would say that from the beginning, and I, I, I honestly don't know what inspired this, Ron, but I, I have looked at this career through the lens of, I want to make a difference in the industry. I want to do things that are going to be meaningful. I don't just want to do a job. I mean, there's nothing wrong with just doing a job. That's what a lot of people do, and thank goodness, because that's what keeps an industry moving. But I, I always wanted to try and chase bigger things and uh, throw the ball a long way. And you know what happens. You throw the ball a long way, two things can happen. Uh, you score a touchdown or uh, it's incomplete or, God forbid, it gets intercepted. Um, so so I, I've always kind of trusted my gut, and I think, the, you know, it's like anything else. You, you rack up a win here or a win there, and you start thinking, 
hey, you know what? I can keep doing this stuff. You know, I, I'm, I've got a platform now where I can try things and see what happens. And that, to me, is what keeps me stimulated. I mean, otherwise, I would have stopped doing this a long time ago and either sought a different line of work or retired, frankly. Um, but that's what keeps me going. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to make a difference. I'm trying to leave the industry in, a, in better shape than when I came in. And, you know, I, I think this is a time when there's great opportunities to make changes. You know, uh, you and I worked in radio when it was the same as it ever was, steady as she goes. Every year was pretty similar to the year before it. And those were great years financially and all that. But, you know, I kind of like this uncertainty in, in a way. This is, <laughs> that's what gets me off is not knowing what tomorrow's going to be. And, yeah. you know, I, it, it's kind of like, you know, I give it my best effort and hopefully that's, that's good enough to fight another day. So that's really how I look at it. And that's what the company's been built on all this time. And I've been lucky. I've had some really good people who have worked for me and with me along the way who have shared that vision. And they get it and respect it. And they know, you know, that's who I am. So it's cool. One final question, Fred, before I let you go, and you've been so generous with your time. Thank you. But I would rem- This is normally where I would ask somebody what is one of the coolest things you got to do in your career, but I have to ask you about this specifically instead because no one thinks about it when they turn on that mic or when they start working in radio. But, man, what an honor. What does it mean to you uh, to be inducted into the National Radio uh, Broadcasting Hall of Fame? Um, it is still... <laughs> It was, it was back in 2018, so it's, it's becoming less recent. Um, it is still mind-boggling to me that I got in. Um, you know, the joke I made that night, it, it's kind of like the uh, place kicker winning the Heisman Trophy. It, it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, so you really appreciate the honor because I'm surrounded by... Really, the greatest people who have ever worked in the business, and most of them have been behind the microphone, actually making radio. You know, I I don't make radio like that. I've kind of come at it from a different angle. So it has meant the world to me. It's a, it, it is a great honor. Um, I think for my family, uh, it, it it was as well. I had my wife and two kids with me uh, for that induction evening. But I have a tremendous amount of gratitude and thankfulness for. The people I've gotten to work with over the years, work for over the years, uh, work with. And, you know, um, it's, it's, it's really cool. I mean, to get that kind of industry recognition is really rare. And I, I understand how important and how cool it really is. So I don't take any of that stuff for granted, Ron. Well, I appreciate you. And I, I lied to you. i got to ask you one final question because this is Radio Days. What do you see as the future of radio as a medium? Where do you see us going? Well, you know, we, we kind of touched on this a little earlier. It's going to be here, and it's going to be a player. It's going to be more one of many. Uh, I think it's going to have to really work hard to figure out how to cope with the multi-generational challenges that it has. And I, I think for the companies that are moving down the multimedia lane where radio is going to be one of the things they do. They're probably ultimately going to be in better shape. But for consumers, it's still radio done right. I mean, 
is going to be local and it's going to be live. And I know live and local has become a cliche, but the bottom line is that's what made radio great in 1968, and, and that's what would make radio great again in, in 2023. And sometimes it's very frustrating for me that I, I think it's very obvious that that is the ultimate way we need to go in order to demonstrate our unique difference. And yet there are so many broadcasters who really deny that or just don't see that. But I, I think if we kind of reawaken to that value and, and, and that idea, we've got a really good shot of being around for a long time. Fred, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. So much appreciated. Thank you sir. for having me. It was really an honor. You really ask great questions, and you bring so much passion to this. Thank you for uh, including me and uh, letting me talk about myself. You know, it's very self-indulgent. You know, what's interesting is, is as I interview some folks from your generation, like Ken Calvert and other folks, I'm amazed because everything now, we you know, we got selfies all the time. We got 40 selfies on our phone. It's amazing to me how how few things people saved from back in the day. I know. Isn't it sad? I mean, you know, we, we didn't do that. And, you know, the other thing is we are so used to now whipping out our phones and taking pictures. And, and I, I see guy, you know, Mike McVeigh and people like that. I mean, they've, they've got incredible photo collections of themselves with, you know, all these stars back in 1979, and I have nothing. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's no record that I met John Mellencamp at Riff, you know, and, and you know, when he was Johnny Cougar. I mean, I, there's just no, there's no record of this stuff anymore, and I, I, we just didn't think that way back then. I mean, I, I don't know any other way about it. I mean, there was, there was no Facebook. You know, we weren't thinking about posting something on the website there was nothing you know we we just turned on the mic and did radio and it was really really simple actually thanks again to fred jacobs and thank you for tuning in to radio days the podcast today's show is brought to you by team 71 mortgage group powered by legacy mortgage team 71 mortgage group sponsors homes for heroes with great incentives for all first responders if you need details call brian allure at 810-444-6466. That's 810-444-6466. Today's show is produced by Ron Robinson Studios. If you need professional marketing videos or professional photography, headshots, maybe you need drone video or photography, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. While you're there, you can also hear previous episodes of Radio Days, the podcast there. Also, if you'd like to learn more about the upcoming documentary about the history of radio, Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio. Click on Radio Days, the movie, under the Documentaries tab at ronrobinsonstudios.com. And thank you for checking out the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next time. You can't go. All the plants are going to die.